0: Good morning. My name is Andy Callis and I am the youth pastor here, if you don't know who I am. Uh, For many of you, you're familiar faces to me and you've been around for quite some time and you might be asking yourself, why does Andy always preach at the very end of the year? It seems like he's always the guy that's at the very end of the year or the very beginning of the next year. And some of you might have thoughts like, maybe he's the guy that Really can instill this inspirational charge for us to change in 2024. He's the guy that is great at casting vision in our lives, but really what it comes down to is I'm usually the guy that's not out of town, and so I'm here. But I know that God has a higher purpose for me being up here than just that, and I am excited to share God's Word with you, as I always am. And um, truth be told is As I'm thinking about the next year and I have opportunities, typically this time of year, to be able to preach, I am kind of thinking about, you know, just even in my own life, how do I want to change? And how do I want to see God work in my life in the next year? And so many times the message that I uh, share at this time is a little bit more of kind of let's go get them, Let's, let's change Um, let's shoot for this, and and this message is going to be a similar uh, challenge today, but a little bit different, maybe a little bit more somber and maybe a little bit less exciting with the topic that we're going to be looking at. But the reason that I chose it is because I am certain that at some level in 2024, you are going to face this. I know that you will, and you probably will often this coming year. Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. And our topic today is facing discouragement. Facing discouragement. We will all face small things this year that will tempt us to be discouraged. I was thinking about just some different situations uh, that some of you all are facing that I have faced. And I was thinking about whenever I was a younger parent of smaller children. And I know that we have plenty of that here. And You've spent who knows how long trying to rock your kid just in the right way so they'll fall asleep. And then you tiptoe into their room and you pull them away from your body heat, hoping and praying, Lord, please, please let them stay asleep so they'll take a nap. I'm going to put them down in their crib and I'm walking out and then, and you hear them crying. That can be very discouraging. It's a small thing, maybe, but it can be very discouraging. Or maybe you're a working adult that has a family. You get done with work and you are going to head home for the day and you're, you just have a picture in your mind of, I'm going to open that door. Probably even before I go in that door, I'm going to smell dinner cooking. It's going to smell great. I'm going to walk in and my spouse and my children are going to greet me and they're going to be so happy that I'm home and it's going to be a night of peace and great discussion. And I'm really looking forward to that. But when you get close to the door, you just hear screaming inside, and you don't smell anything that smells good, and there's no plans of dinner, and there's conflict that has ensued, and your entire night is kind of chaotic. That can be very discouraging. Maybe a smaller thing, but it can be very discouraging. Or maybe there's something bigger. There's a certain position or promotion that you've looked forward to for years, and you have been loyal To the company that you have been working for, and you've been working hard and and overtime and putting in extra hours so that you'd be considered for this position, and when the time comes, you get passed over by somebody else. That's kind of a bigger thing. That can be very discouraging. Or maybe you've lost someone that you love, someone that's passed away, or maybe you've lost them in a different way, and there's been a divorce, or someone's moved away that you care about. That can be very discouraging. We face things like this. We face things like this every year, and these things are challenging. What we're going to look at today is how does God want you and I to process and to handle these discouraging or potentially discouraging situations for our good and for his glory? That's what I hope to answer today, and the way that we're going to do that is we're going to take some time to look at possibly the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, and his name is Elijah. And we're going to see how this prophet got into discouragement and despair, but then how God helped lead him out of it. And I think there's some lessons that you and I can learn to help us if we're in a similar situation. But I want to give you some background on this before we jump into First Kings 19. So for the fall semester, the youth studied the life of Elijah, and he is really a fascinating character that I feel like does not get as much street cred as some other Old Testament greats like Abraham or Moses or David, but yet think about this. Elijah was one of two people in the Bible who never died, Enoch and Genesis being the only other one. Elijah performed great miracles like halting the rain for three and a half years, providing an ongoing meal for a widow and her son for an extended period of time miraculously, raising someone from the dead, that hasn't happened very many times in the Bible, calling down fire from heaven multiple times and parting the Jordan River and walking across. In the New Testament, we see him show up as well. Him and Moses are the two men that are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, as the disciples saw Christ in his glory. And most likely, it is also him and Moses who are the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who prophesy God's judgment on the nations. So we see that Elijah's life and his ministry uh, are prominent in the Old Testament, even some in the New Testament, and he is a big deal in Scripture. And as we studied his life, there are some key words that we noticed to describe him. One of them being that he was a man of the word. He was a man of the word. So if you remember Elijah's story, when he first comes on the scene, he comes before King Ahab and he says, hey, God is going to halt the rain if you don't write this ship and start worshiping the God of Israel. And this was not Elijah's idea, though. This was actually God's idea, and he knew God's word. It says in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen 16 through 17, that if Israel followed other gods, the Lord was going to shut up the heavens. Elijah knew that, and so he simply declared to King Ahab, this is what God has said, and this is what he is going to do. He knew God's word. Also, he was a man of prayer. When he prayed, he believed that God heard him and that God would answer. When he asked God to raise the widow's son who had died, or whenever he asked God to bring fire down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice, or he asked God to open up the heavens and to to let the, the rain return, he believed that God heard him and that God was going to provide. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. Nothing was too big for God to do in Elijah's eyes. When God told Elijah to live by the brook Cherith and to wait for the Lord until God told him what he wanted to do next and to be fed by ravens, which was even an unclean bird in the Old Testament, he said, okay. He believed that God was going to take care of him. He was a man of faith. He was a man of courage. He lived in a time of the most evil king to date in the northern kingdom, King Ahab, It says in 1 Kings 16.30 that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all of the kings before him. So this was a very dark time, yet Elijah comes and he confronts the king multiple times to tell him, you are going to be judged by God for the way that you're leading Israel. On top of that, Elijah confronted 450 false prophets at one time, him versus all of them, and he won the showdown. So he was a man of great courage. He was a man of discipleship. He knew that his life would end one day. It ended in a way that he maybe didn't expect, but he knew that it wasn't gonna go on forever and somebody else needed to carry the mantle as being Israel's prophet. So he empowered Elisha to follow in his footsteps and to be Israel's prophet. In fact, there was a new age that was ushered in kind of based off of the ministry of Elijah where prophets are seen more and more in Israel. So these characteristics of Elijah give us great insight and great aspirations into the kind of people that we want to be, right? We want to be people of the word. We want to be people of prayer. We want to be people of faith and courage and of discipleship. Those are the kind of people that we want to be. And in this coming year, we want to aim for those things and grow in those things. But if we had just stopped with those four lessons, I think that Elijah would have kind of seemed like this superhero that we couldn't relate to. Like, man, this, this guy has just got it all going on, and, and I know myself, and I know how much I fall short, and I know that I don't. And this is why I think that 1 Kings 19 is so important as we study the life of Elijah. Because Elijah was not a superhero. He was more like us than we maybe care to think about. Talks about this in James 5:16 through 18, where James says. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And I like how the NIV translation renders it here. He was a human being, even as we are. What does that mean? Well, that means he was no superhero. He was a sinner. He struggled in similar ways that we do. And discouragement was one of them. And we can certainly identify with that. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings 19. That's gonna be where we're at today. And we're gonna read about Elijah's discouragement and we're gonna see how God helped him through it. So the first, if you're taking notes, the first point in your outline is warning signs for the discouraged, Warning signs for the discouraged. Think about the last time that you can remember where you experienced some discouragement. Maybe it was something small. Maybe it was something big. Maybe it was a change of plans where you had to kind of adjust your whole schedule. And it was kind of discouraging. It was kind of, kind of hard. Maybe it was a poor performance at work or in the classroom or maybe on the field. Maybe it's a besetting sin, something where it seems like you just continue to struggle over and over with the same thing. Or maybe it was a financial setback or it was an illness or it was a conflict that came out of nowhere. But whatever it was, what was going on in your heart to cause a discouragement? We need to stop and ask ourselves that question. And I'm guessing it would be something like this. I anticipated a different result from this thing that was important to me and I lost hope. I anticipated a different result from this thing that was important to me, and I lost hope. That's oftentimes how discouragement comes. We have an anticipation, our anticipation is not met. We get down, we get discouraged, we lose hope. I can think about just even a small example in my own life lately where my wife and I have decided there's some debt that we want to pay down. So, we're like, All right, we're going to put the extra money toward this debt and start to pay that down. Well, what happens when you do that? Well, this breaks down. And then there's an unexpected expense. And it's easy in those moments to just kind of lose hope and be like, well, what's the use? The problem in these moments is when we anticipate a different result than what we get, instead of moving forward in faith and trusting God's plan and his provision, oftentimes we shrink back in disbelief, trusting in our own plan over his And maybe you can see that as you think about examples recently from your own life. John Piper makes this simple observation about discouragement. Discouragement is, by definition, a deficit of courage. And if you just look at the word itself, discourage, not courage. It's not having courage to move forward and to trust God's plan with this unexpected situation. So here we have Elijah. And up through First Kings 18, he has been nothing short of a spiritual stud. And his most recent victory was a showdown between himself and 450 false prophets. This is probably one of the most famous stories about Elijah's life. So you might be familiar with it. So he challenges all of these false prophets, 450 of them, like, let's see whose God is real. And so all these false prophets who are really tight with the the evil queen Jezebel at the time, he's like, let's have all of Israel come, and we're going to have a showdown, and we're going to settle this once and for all, whose God is the true God? So he invites all of Israel to come. The first thing that he does is he says, hey, nation of Israel, listen up. You've got to decide who are you going to serve. You can serve the God of Israel, or you can serve Baal, but I'm sick and tired of you trying to serve both. That's not the way that this needs to go. You need to pick one or the other and you need to follow them wholeheartedly. He says, quit limping between two opinions. So he tells them to serve God or serve Baal with all of their hearts. Then he challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. He says, okay, well, we're gonna see which God, we'll prepare a sacrifice on an altar over here, you do yours and I'll do mine, and we're just gonna see which God is gonna show up and bring fire down On that altar and burn up the sacrifice. So we see the prophets of Baal and they perform their religious rituals and they are working hard at calling out to Baal and asking him to show up and burn up their sacrifice. And they call out for hours and hours and hours. And what we see in scripture is it says, But no one heard and no one listened. And they're even to the point where they're gashing themselves and they are starting to bleed and things like this because they're desiring so much to show that their God is the true God, but nothing happens. Elijah even taunts them and says, maybe your God's using the restroom. Maybe that's why he doesn't hear you. And so we see this taking place and then Elijah simply offers a prayer to God and fire comes down from heaven and consumes his altar, the sacrifice, and everything around it that has been absolutely drenched with water, and the people are in awe. So Elijah commands the people to seize the false prophets and to kill every single one of them for the crimes that they've committed against God. Then Elijah prays, and the Lord finally brings rain after three and a half years of drought. Then Elijah runs in the Lord's strength about 15 miles to Jezreel, and he beats Ahab's chariot there. That's quite a day, right? That is an enormous spiritual victory, multiple miracles that happen on the same day. It seems the people have turned to the Lord. Ahab witnesses everything that God did. If there was ever going to be a time For an evil king and an evil queen and an evil nation to repent and turn to God, surely this would be the time. So it's easy to see Elijah's expectation and what he anticipated and why, but something very unexpected happens instead. In 1 Kings 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, take take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's expectation was repentance. Elijah's result was stronger unbelief. That would be hard to deal with, and that would be very unexpected. This evil queen was still evil. She grew up in an area called Sidon, which was an area dominated by Baal worship, and she was not about to change. She seemed to wield even more power at times than King Ahab, where she is the one who's responsible in 1 Kings 18.4 for continually, uh, for cutting off many prophets of the Lord and having them killed. And she continually had the 450 false prophets to her, house, to her palace as personal guests at her dinner table. So her threat to Elijah, it was real, it was fierce, and this is not what Elijah expected at all. So what does he do? Well, instead of operating by faith, he operates by fear. And as people of God, we are commanded to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But Elijah forgets this. And so instead, fear sets in. And walking by fear can do all kinds of negative things in your life. Here's a few that we see in the life of Elijah. Walking by fear produces irrational behavior. So, it's normal for Elijah to be concerned for his safety in that moment. But here's what Elijah did. He ran all the way to Beersheba. And if you don't have a Bible map in front of you that has a legend, that might not mean too much to you. But if you do, you will see that that's about a hundred miles away. He runs a hundred miles away from this queen. Despite God sustaining him through three and a half years of drought, Despite God sustaining him through confrontations with an evil king where he could have lost his life, Elijah thought, I'm on my own. I've got to figure this out on my own. He's walking by fear that's motivating what he does, and he has to get as far away from the queen as he possibly can. So he runs 100 miles. This was irrational behavior. But walking by fear can produce irrational behavior. It can also produce... An unhealthy desire to be alone. In Proverbs 18:1 it says, whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. Elijah, he leaves his servant in Beersheba when he finally gets the, goes 100 miles and he gets there, but then he leaves his servant there and he goes for another day's journey out in the wilderness by himself. Discouraged people oftentimes want to isolate themselves and they seek their own desire, which many times can be self-pity. I just want to think about how discouraged I am and how awful things are. As this proverb said, says that many times they don't want to hear sound judgment or encouragement from anyone else. So Elijah desired isolation, but walking by fear can do that. Walking by fear can also produce a desire for death. Elijah was so discouraged that he desired death. Now he knew that suicide was against God's law, so he wasn't um, intending to do that. But he asked God to just, just finish the job. Lord, I have nothing left. Go ahead and kill me because I cannot handle life anymore. Have you ever been there before? And, and maybe it wasn't so direct as that, but it was more of, Jesus, would you just come back? Could you just come back now because I just can't handle this anymore. And I wish that you would just save me from this and take me out, away from this life. Most of us have felt that way at one time or another. I just wanna encourage you, if you feel that way now, the worst thing that you can do is isolate yourself. The worst thing that you can do is do irration- think irrationally and have irrational behavior like Elijah did. Talk to a Christian friend, meet with a pastor, meet with your small group leader, make sure that you're communicating about how you feel. And then the last thing that we see is he walks by fear is an unhealthy comparison to others. Elijah declares, well, I'm no better than my fathers. And, and it's good to have role models. It's good to have people that you look up to and disciple you, but it's not good for having that as a, uh, a jealous comparison. You'll always fall short. So when someone walks by fear instead of walking by faith, these are the kind of things that they desire, the kind of things that they think, or the kind of things that they do. These are warning signs. Do you see any of those in your own life? Or do you see any of those in the life of someone that you care about? If you do, you need to get help or you need to intervene and help out. Elijah was in the thick of deep discouragement. And here's one thing that we need to remember that Elijah needed to know and that we need to know is when we're in the thick of deep discouragement, and this leads us to our second point, God's care for the discouraged. God cares about us when we are discouraged and we're in despair. But at this time, you know who else cares, and it's for destructive purposes? Satan does. It's easy to become a primary target for Satan whenever you are struggling with discouragement, suffering, and despair. In his book, Gospel Conversations, Bob Kellerman says that in these times, Satan hisses at us saying, where are God's great and precious promises now? You say God's good all the time, but from where I'm standing, he doesn't look so good to me. Disappointments in life, they can cause us to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. Satan also wants to use these times to get us to doubt God's love. Puritan pastor uh, Richard Sibb said, It was Satan's art from the beginning to discredit God with man by calling God's love into question with our first father, Adam. His success then makes him ready at the weapon still. Disappointments in life can cause us to doubt God's love. Satan will also try to use these times to get us to doubt God's grace. Martin Luther said, This then is the most furious and sudden of all attacks, in which the devil transforms himself into the likeness of the angry and ungracious God. After all, as we think about Satan and who he is, he is an angry lion roaring around, prowling around, looking for whom he can devour. And he's the great accuser in Revelation that has nothing but condemnation in his heart for you and I. So if he can get us to think that God is like him, he's going to win and we will never see his grace. Disappointments in life can cause us to doubt God's grace. But we need to know in these times to not listen to Satan and his lies, but listen to God, that he cares in our times of discouragement. Here's some things that his word has to say. Psalm 55, 22. "'Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. "'He will never permit the righteous to be moved.'" God wants you to come to him. He wants you to cast this burden that you have on him. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest. "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, "'for I am gentle and lowly in heart, "'and you will find rest for your souls.'" For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, when you are heavy laden and life is hard, I want you to come to me and in me you will find rest. Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our time of need is when we are struggling with weakness and struggling with sin. We have a savior who sympathizes with us. He doesn't condemn us. He wants us to come to him that we might receive mercy and grace, which is exactly what we need in times of discouragement. So Elijah was about to learn in the midst of his discouragement and his despair that God cares for him. Let's look at verses 5 through 8 in First Kings 19. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Have you ever noticed how discouragement can affect you physically? Proverbs attest to this. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. We can, when we're worried and anxious, we can feel it. It weighs us down. Proverbs 17, says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And David even attested to this too in Psalm 32, 3 through 4, when he said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Discouragement and despair and struggling with sin can just zap the life out of us, of course spiritually, but also physically. Elijah was beat from discouragement. His long journey, a hundred miles, I'm sure that that didn't help either. And we need to remember that we are both body and soul. We're physical and spiritual. The physical affects the spiritual and the spiritual affects the physical also. What is the first thing that Elijah needed? And this was really funny, but one of our students said, well, he needed a snack and a nap. And we got a kick out of that, but I thought that's, that's a great description. Sometimes we need a snack and a nap, right? And it's not unspiritual to need a snack and a nap because God has given us a physical body that needs those things at times. So he sleeps and an angel provided food and water for him. What's the second thing that Elijah needed? Another snack and another nap. Do you see that this happened twice? It's not unspiritual to need two snacks and to need two naps, Sometimes that's what you need, and that's okay. We see that once again, the angel provides this for him, and this time it gives him enough supernatural physical strength that he needs to move on. It's not unspiritual to need things physically, like more sleep or to need food. This may just be what you need in your discouragement to help you. Are you caring for your physical body? That's something we often think about whenever New Year's rolls around, right? The gyms are packed for about six weeks or so. And we start to think about, well, how do I need to change my diet? And maybe I need to sleep more and I need to exercise a little bit more. And those are great aspirations. Those things can help us spiritually. Uh, I think about uh, guys that I hold accountable for fighting sexual temptation and purity. And one of the things that we inevitably will talk about is your sleep patterns, are, are you staying up too late? Um, are you getting enough rest? When, when you wake up in the morning, are you getting up and, you, and, and facing your day? Because these things are important. It doesn't solve the problem of lust in your heart, but you're inviting more temptation than necessary if you're not paying attention to these physical things also. What's the third thing that Elijah needed? He needed time to meet with the Lord. So this physical nourishment, what was it leading to? It was giving him the ability to be able to go and meet with God. So Elijah travels 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb. And of course, we know that 40 is very significant in the Bible. And this mountain was significant too, because it's also known as Mount Sinai, and that might ring a bell. You're like, I've heard that one before. Well, that's where Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights without food and water receiving the law from God and moving into his next phase of service for God's people. Elijah was going to the same place that Moses met with God so that he could do the same. And he knew that he needed to meet with the Lord. He knew this has to be a priority as I'm facing this kind of discouragement. And he took his time doing it and he took his time even getting there. According to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 2, this was about an 11-day journey. But how long does it take him? It takes him 40 days to get there, and it was about 200 mi- 250 miles. He did all of this because he needed to meet with God. Here's a question for us. If you know that that's what you need, of course we all need this on a routine basis, but that's really what you need right now, what are you willing to sacrifice to meet with God? Isn't it worth driving where you've got to drive, setting the alarm so that you'll get up, or whatever you have to do, taking the afternoon, taking a weekend so that you can meet with God and get things straight with him? Any sacrifice that's necessary is worth it. And that's what Elijah saw. He needed to go and he needed to meet with God, and God was going to prepare him just like he did with Moses for his next phase of service. The last thing to note here is the angel. So we know that according to Hebrews 1.14, angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who would inherit salvation. That is believers. That's their job. So we see this angel compassionately doing that for a man who really who was in a, a state of despair that was really of his own making, right? We want to remember that because God is showing grace to someone who it's like, you know, if you would have just operated by fear instead of faith, none of this would have happened. God knows that, but he still sends an angel in his grace to minister to Elijah, who really is in a mess of his own making. And there's debate on this, um, about this angel, but it could be the angel in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. And many scholars have deemed that this angel is Christ himself um, before he became a man at the incarnation, And one reason they think this is because we see this angel being worshiped at times. We see this angel being revered as God. And in this passage, we see that it says an angel the first time, and then it says the angel uh, the second time. And the angel of the Lord appears again to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, and I see no convincing reason to not assume that this is the angel of the Lord, that this is Christ himself, which is just another confirmation that God cares that much for Elijah in his time of discouragement. He comes to him and he shows compassion and grace. This is something that we need to remember whenever we're down. God offers this rest and this peace and he will come to me to help me during this time. So God cares for the discouraged. He provides for them physically and spiritually, whatever their needs are, because he is a God of great love and grace. And our last point uh, point number three is that God speaks to the discouraged. God speaks to the discouraged. He cares for them, and He cares enough that He is going to speak to them. Sometimes, when we get discouraged, we get so caught up in the moment, or the emotions that are associated with it, that we fail to slow down and ask ourselves this question: Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so discouraged? I've just been running around crazy, had these emotions that have been up and down in every which way. Why is it that I'm so discouraged? What is going on in my heart? What was I anticipating that didn't happen? Why did I want that thing so much? What kind of earthly pleasures and treasures was I desiring too strongly? We have to slow down, and we've got to process things and God would give Elijah a chance to do that and restore hope in Elijah as well as we finish our passage 1 Kings 19:9 9 through 18 There he came to a cave and lodged in it and behold the word of the Lord came to him and said to him What are you doing here Elijah And he said I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face, his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, "'Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place.'" And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I, have, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In Elijah's story, he had waited on the Lord before. Now he is waiting in a cave. For God to speak to him, and God does. And there's a couple things that I want to notice here. First of all, God asks him twice, what are you doing here in verse 9 and 13? Why is God asking him this? Well, God knows exactly why he's there, right? God has seen it all. God knows what's going on in his heart. God doesn't need any information, but Elijah does. Elijah, think about this. What are you doing here? You've been running for over a hundred miles, hundreds of miles, emotions up and down. What are you doing here? What has happened? He wanted to give him a chance to think through that question. Secondly, Elijah had a chance to process and to speak in verses 10 and 14. God asked him that question twice. Elijah gives him a response two different times. And Elijah has legitimate concerns. There's a lot of truth in the things that he's saying, but not everything is true that he thinks or that he feels. He has been very jealous for the Lord. That, that's how he has operated his entire ministry. That's true. The people have forsaken God. The people have torn down his altar. But it's the queen, not everyone, uh, who has killed the prophets. And it is she, not everyone, who is seeking his life. And though he felt alone, he was not the only one who had not bowed his knee to Baal. It's not that what we desire or anticipate is necessarily wrong. Many times we have great desires and we have great anticipations. What Elijah desired, he desired repentance. He desired change in the land. That's a great desire to have. But it's rather when we respond with a lack of faith and trust in God's plan and God's provision for the situation. That's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes discouraging. In fear, as Elijah had been operating in fear for so long, our version of reality gets distorted. We start to think that certain things are real that are not real. And Elijah, he struggled with a distorted reality. He needed a reminder of what the truth was. Thirdly, God does not work only in flashy miracles, verses 11 through 13. So Elijah's told, go stand out on the mountain, and um, God is going to show up. And so God's presence passes by, and there are just some terrifying physical manifestations that follow. The first one is something that appears to be almost like just a gale force wind or a tornado that causes rocks to fall And I can picture a landslide that's going on, but the text says that God wasn't in the wind. And then there's an earthquake and a violent shaking of the ground, but God wasn't in that either. And then, and Elijah had seen this before with the prophets of Baal, there's a fire that comes down from heaven, but God is not in the fire. What is God in? Well, he's in this still, small voice. Because see, Elijah had seen all of these kind of things before. He'd seen these big, flashy miracles. He'd seen God use those things. And maybe he'd started to think, this is the way God works. This is the only way that he's going to work, because this is what I've seen. But yet, it's a still, small whisper that draws him out of the cave. I think that Elijah is, God is trying to show Elijah, and he's trying to show you and I, I don't just work in the big flashy things. I don't just work in the big events. I don't just work in this, on the spiritual mountaintops in your life. That I am working in the normal day-to-day operations in life. And he uses that just as much, and I would say even more, than signs and wonders to draw people to himself. Fourthly, God is not finished with Elijah, but he had tasks for him to do in verses 15 through 17. God answers Elijah's statement with, go. You've met with me. You've been in your discouragement long enough. Now I want you to go. And this is kind of reminiscent of Job, right? Job has all these questions for God. God, how about this and how about that? And God responds. He doesn't answer any of his questions. And then at the end, Job's like, okay, that's kind of what I needed to hear. God knows what we need to hear even when we don't know what we need to hear. And so God knew that Elijah needs to hear You just need to go because I'm not finished with you. Get out of the cave, get up, and start moving. Get your eyes off of yourself and start looking around because there's tasks that I have for you you to do. He had two kings to crown. He had a prophetic predecessor to anoint. And these are important tasks. God wanted him to take hold of this thought that Paul gives us in Philippians 3, 12 through 14, which says, Elijah belongs to God, and so do you and I if you're in Christ. So we can forget the past, we can strain toward what's ahead, because God is calling us forward, he's not calling us backward. And the fifth and final thing is Elijah wasn't alone in verse 18. Elijah felt alone, and it seemed that he did a lot of ministry alone, but God was always by his side, and there were 7,000 other people who were following the Lord and worshiping him that were not bowing their knee to Baal. What we see is not all there is, and that's walking by faith. God is the one who's omniscient. He knows everything. God is the one who's omnipresent. He's everywhere. We don't know everything, and we can't be everywhere at the same time. This is why we have to trust him and walk by faith because we will never see the full picture. Proverbs fifteen three says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God will speak to our discouraged hearts if we slow down, we ask ourselves the question, what am I doing here? Why am I so discouraged? Ponder what led us to that point. Listen to what God has to say from his word and get moving forward. As we conclude today and you think about the upcoming year, you're going to face... Unanticipated, potentially discouraging, challenging situations. Some of them will be big, some of them will be small. How will you respond to those situations? Will you respond with faith, trusting God, or with fear and trusting in yourself? We see in the life of Elijah that one path leads to the glory of God, which is what has, God has called each and every one of us to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. When we trust him by faith, he's glorified. And that's what we want. But we also see, as we looked at here today in the life of Elijah, there's another path that we can choose. And this path leads to destruction. This path leads to death. When we trust self, we inevitably are gonna be filled with fear and it will lead to our own demise and it will cause us not to see the ministry that God has for us that's all around us. So as you think about your own life, how are you feeling right now? Even as you look ahead to the upcoming year, are you discouraged? Think about the warning signs that we talked about. Irrational thinking and behavior. An unhealthy desire to be alone or compare yourself to other people or maybe even a desire to die. If that's you, you need to talk with someone. You need to meet with the Lord and you need to talk with a Christian friend that could help you. Or maybe it's someone that you know and and you see that in the life of somebody else. Go be the person that they need to talk to that can pray with them and help them, point them to the Lord. Remember how much God cares for you. Even if you're in a mess of your own making that has discouraged you and brought you despair in your life, We see in the story of Elijah, God comes to him in his despair, despite the fact that it's a mess that he has created. He is filled with grace for you, and he dearly loves you. God wants to speak to you. And no matter how far off track you've gotten, just like with Elijah, he's not done with you. He has more for you to do as long as there is breath in your lungs. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we look at the life of Elijah today, and we see, um, we can see ourselves, I'm sure of it. We can see someone who loves God. We can see someone who is very zealous for the Lord, whose aim in life is to be a person of the word, of prayer, of faith, of courage, and discipleship. But we also see someone who struggles He was a human being just as we are. And he struggled deeply with discouragement and despair. And there's times where we do too, God. There might even be some people here that are really struggling with that right now. And God, I pray as we uh, move ahead into the new year with a current challenge that we're facing or challenges that we will face, both big and small, that Lord, you would help us to respond in faith, and encourage to trust you and your plan, your sovereignty and your goodness, and to not trust in ourselves, and to think that it's all on us, or that we have to figure it out, or that our plan is better than yours, because it's not. So I pray that this year, Lord, as we face these different situations, that you would help us to remember these things from the life of Elijah, and to move forward in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.